So, Daniel, I hear you've been studying ethics. Yes, I have been. I have been studying ethics, um, meta ethics in particular. Yeah, my favorite kind of ethics. <laughs> yeah, I'm a divine command theorist myself, or a variant thereof. What about you? Uh, I, I, I'm not really into. I'm not um, a divine command theorist. Mm. I, I, I'm not sure what, what I, what my the name of my view is, but it's more of a kind of um. Uh, I'm just going to call it Trinitarian ethics for now. Yeah. It's not a terribly descriptive name there, Daniel. Yeah. So, cause you know, there is no, I don't think there is any um, name for it in the literature, but mm -hmm. it's not divine command theory, but neither is it, um, for example, natural law theory. Mm. It's some kind of middle ground between the two. Yep. That's where I'd find myself uh, where I would say, Divine command theory in so much as you can treat the Old Testament like a list meta-ethic for virtuous behavior, but it's also principalized into virtues that you can enact in a non-list meta-ethic format. So here's the letter of the law, and now apply that principle. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, okay, I get what you're saying. So for that, you are a theonomist, right? Right. So yeah. So basically, um, the the I'd agree that the um, the the commands in Scripture are are basically our ethical guide, but the, the, this is a different this is different from the meta ethical question of what is the nature of, for example, moral facts or things like that. Mm -hmm. And so, what I'd say is that divine commands. So. For example, someone like William Lane Craig, Gross. his divine command theory. <laughs> yeah, right. So his divine command theory basically says that divine commands serve as the basis for um, moral obligations and mm. divine commands are grounded in God's nature or whatever. So basically what I'm saying, my view is that divine commands only have an epistemological role to play in a Christian meta-ethic. So divine commands are how we know what is right and wrong, but that's just it. What grounds right and wrong for me is basically the, the perfections of the, of the persons in the Trinity. Hmm. So God has a unique Trinitarian life and he is intrinsically valuable and worthy and this, the, the communion that occurs within the Trinity is the basis for all moral value. And divine commands are just how we know, how we um, come to know this fundamentally incommunicable, perfect Trinitarian life. Right. So th that is how we can apply it to our lives. So for, for me, divine commands play just an epistemological role. Right. So we're not running into the Euthyphro dilemma with whether God's perfection is driving what he says or whether what he says is driving his perfection in his moral uh, attributes. Yeah. So there are, we have um, different ways of avoiding the, the Euthyphro dilemma. For example, we, mm -hmm. there is the, we can take the, the regular middle ground and say that God's nature is the ground for his commands mm. 
Mm-hmm. And that, that is what grounds the value. But so the thing about the youth pro is that um, the, uh, various, in, in the literature, there are various formulations of it. So it is not just enough to um, just give a simple answer, but I, I don't think, um, because once we get into the uh, discussion of the youth pro, it, it can become really complex. And for those who do not really study philosophy of religion, it may not really um, benefit them. So, but the basic answer is that the, the solution to the youth pro dilemma is just to take the middle ground and say that God's nature is the ground of moral good. Right. So God is neither arbitrary nor bound by some higher uh, ultimate standard. Exactly. Uh, are you a reconstructionist? I have sympathies to the view, but mm. I, I just say I haven't studied it enough to fully understand and accept it, but I have sympathies to the view. All right. So it sounds like you are right where my moderators are at as I'm trying to make them reconstructionists. Uh, so reconstructionism <laughs> is, is another five points. So you got your five solas, your five points of Calvinism, and you've got your five points of reconstructionism. Uh, it's Calvinism, covenant theology, post-millennialism, presuppositionalism, and theonomic ethics. Now, if you're reformed, you should already have the Calvinism and covenant theology. If you, well, I can't say that. That's a little inflammatory. I would say if you read your Bible, you should be post-millennialist. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of faithful ah mills and pre-mills out there. Historic pre-mills, obviously. No dispensationalists here. Uh, and then presuppositionalism. Obviously, you and I would certainly agree on that. And then theonomic ethics, as far as I'm concerned, that's just applying the principles of presuppositionalism to the civil sphere. So for me, it, it was a relatively short road to get there as soon as I embraced presuppositionalism and dipped my toes into post-millennial waters. The rest came very quickly. It's uh, one can argue that things like Calvinism and um, presuppositionalism entail some kind of reconstructionism. But I think I, I have a friend that is, is a kind of four point reconstructionist. So he agrees on everything else apart from, um, I know some would argue that whether or not presuppositionalism is a necessary part of reconstructionism. Right. So on reconstructionism, uh, do, do you believe that we, like when you hear reconstructionism, it's almost synonymous with Rush Dooney and like Gary North. Do you think we have to believe exactly what they do in order to be reconstructionist or has it kind of taken on a life of its own and we're applying the principles that they set forth and are actually working them out in a kind of different way? Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm not really the best person to ask about things like this, because mm-hmm. like I said, I haven't really studied it that much, but I think it is possible for a, a movement like Reconstructionism to um, deviate a bit from the original views of its, its, um, its pioneers, right? Mm-hmm. As long as one remains consistent with the fundamental principles that they set forth. Right. I think we're being faithful in that, but I also have tattoos and I'm condemned for that by some reconstructionists. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, something I know you can talk about for a while 
and it's going to be full of jargon. So lots of fun for both of us, ideally. Uh, the problem of induction and the problem of the one, the many, and how only Trinitarian monotheism can solve both. Yeah. So the thing is that each of those deserves their own episode because oh, yeah. we can we can talk about it for hours. <laughs> but but what I'd say is that the problem of induction for me is just kind of reduces the problem of the one of the many. So mm. we, we can just address the problem of the one of the many, and we can also for the, the the listeners who can think clearly about it, I think they can apply that to the problem of induction also. Mm. So uh, I'll go ahead and describe the problem of the one and the many, since I've got my little definition here in front of me. I'm currently looking sure. at the Dictionary of Reformed Theology here on epistemicmedia.com. So as I've defined it, uh, you can, since you've got more experience with it, if you want to uh, tweak my definition. Um, I'll, I'll add some edits into the website as well. But the problem of the one of the many is possibly the oldest philosophical problem. It deals with the question of whether the nature of reality is ultimately unified or diverse. If reality is ultimately unified, then why are things different from one another? And if reality is ultimately diverse, then why is anything remotely similar? Early attempts to solve this problem include Plato's forms, and the Hindu conception of Brahman, but neither ultimate oneness or ultimate diversity can account for reality as it is without uh, denigrating one or the other into an illusion or into fiction. Anything to add? Uh, no, I, I think that is a, a, a fantastic summary of the, the issue, right? And and the problem of the one of the many, it, it's, it's, so, um, it's so interesting because it has varying applications throughout philosophy like it pops up literally everywhere not just in metaphysics but in epistemology and ethics as well and 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 it, one can can argue that a very la large percentage of the problems in philosophy boil down in some way to the problem of the one and the many for example the problem of the criterion for example it can be seen as a as an instance of the problem of the one and many, and also the problem of induction can be seen as an instance of the problem of the one and the many. But so, I think, yeah. You, so the problem yeah, of the one ahead. and the many is not just something we presuppositionalists made up because we can actually solve it? No, 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 no. Like, like, like you said, it goes back all the way to Plato and the Greek philosophers. Because mm. yeah, I have so, heard that critique levied against us, where some people have never heard of the problem of the one and the many before presuppositionalists brought up, and we just so happen to have the perfect solution to it, so we must be the ones who are uh, peddling this stuff. Yeah, and, and that is just so funny, because uh, just a cursory search on Google brings out um, non-presuppositionalist sources about the problem, and mm. so I think that says more about the person than what we argue. Uh, so how does this problem pop up in epistemology and ethics? Yeah, so in epistemology, we could ask, how do we know, um, uh, for, um, how do we make sense of the unity and diversity we find in experience? So we could ask what, which is, epistemologically foundational is it mm -hmm. unity or diversity so 
when we experience things, are we to um, explain them in terms of what they have in common with other things? Or are we to explain them in terms of themselves? So is the individual epistemologically foundational or is the class in the, um, epistemologically foundational? So hmm. that's the way to phrase it epistemologically. But it also pops up, like I said, in in um, in some philosophical problems, like the problem of induction, or the problem of the criterion, and and so it, it I I would say that in many cases it, it's still you can see some overlap with the metaphysical problem, but but it, it does have variations in the epistemology, yes. Mm. So to bring it a little closer down to earth, if I were to pet a dog, would I need to understand that experience primarily in this animal or this being with these properties is right in front of me? Or do I need to understand dogness and what all dogs are like? Yeah, exactly. So, so, so when you pet your dog, you, you, in order to know your dog, you need to know you need to know the particular dog that you're petting. And you also need to know things about the entire class of dogness, the entire class of animals, the entire class of living things, and even the entire class of things in general. And mm -hmm. so we have to ask ourselves, how, how do we even make sense of, of, these, uh, of these things, right? Because if we say, um, if you take the, your pet dog, for example, we, we can say if, if we analyze it the, as it is as an individual, we could ask what makes it the individual that it is, right? How, what makes the dog the dog? And, and that takes us down a rabbit hole where we get to the point that we'd have to say it is so individual that it has no relationship with anything else mm. and that 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 kind of makes it um unintelligible right because if something is so individual that it has no relationship to anything else it's basically unknowable but in the same way if we try to analyze it in terms of what it has in common with other things if we talk about dogness we talk about being an animal, being a living thing, being a thing, then we've abstracted so much that we are not even talking about a dog anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, so that, that is a conundrum, right? Because going too far in one direction, you get abstract universals and going too far in the other direction, you get abstract particulars and neither of them are intelligible. So we need a way to make unity and diversity equally ultimate, both in metaphysics and epistemology. And only um, Christian theology does that. And how does it do that? And so, yeah, so basically what Van Til says is the, 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 the doctrine of the Trinity dissolves the problem because because if we affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, we are able to posit that both unity and diversity 
are equally eternal and equally ultimate. We do not have to sacrifice one for the other because God, who is both united and diverse, he is one in three, one in essence and three in person. He is able to create the world to reflect him. And so we have a world that is both united and diverse. That is the basic um, dissolution of the problem. So we do not have to affirm the ultimacy of unity, and we do not need to affirm the ultimacy, ultimacy of diversity. We, we can't affirm that they are equally ultimate, and that dissolves the problem. So you're telling me that one of the oldest philosophical problems ever is solved by the Christian understanding of God. Yes, that is basically it. Kind of wild that nobody else figured out that whole like ultimate thing needing to be both plural and singular at the same time. Right. And so and and that and that is the the crazy thing, right? Because Christian philosophers, and I don't understand why they do this, but they prefer to tackle these philosophical problems without relying on their most powerful weapon, which is Christian theology. Mm. And it, it just doesn't uh, make sense because they believe that in order to be, in order to be um, taken seriously by um, the um, non-Christian philosophical community, they have to basically not assume anything about the Bible. And and that is just um that is just sad. Hmm. So we're not supposed to be pulling Justin Martyrs and wearing our philosopher clothes and going into the town square to argue philosophy with people on their terms. Right. We're we're not right because we have to start from Christian theology. Mm. And Christian philosophers, for some reason, do not want to do that. I guess it, they believe that it's possible to be neutral, but we all know that neutrality is a myth. Well, you and I know neutrality is a myth, but there are a whole <laughs> exactly. host of people out there who, for some odd reason, think that there is neutral epistemic ground and that we can like meet with an atheist at eye level and trust what we're standing on is you know equal for both of us. And uh, exactly, you know, why do you think the the problem of neutrality is so alluring to so many Christians? Is it like they they just want to be respected by their fellow but fallen man, or do you think there's a deeper, maybe more sin nature based element to it? Well, obviously, we have to affirm the the noetic effects of sin, right? But I'd say I, you know, for, we need to be charitable, right? We're not trying to say that um, our Christian brothers are deliberately um, um, setting aside their Christian commitments, but it's just that they believe that it is possible to be neutral, that they, they believe that in order to not beg the question, in order to be rational, they need to be neutral. And so when the Van Tillen comes along and says, I presuppose Christian scriptures when I am debating an unbeliever, they see that as 
an irrational approach. And so they don't take it. And so the, the job of Van Tillian and what we have argued for decades since Van Til is to show that neutrality is impossible and we need to find a way to rationally resolve the disagreement between the Christian and the non-Christian without um, devolving into mere question begging. Mm. And, and, and that, is the, that is the crazy thing about all this is that when, um, non, when, when Christian um, thinkers were not Vantilian, when they um, criticize the presuppositional approach, they, they never address um, our arguments for our core principles, right? Because they can talk about how, for example, the transcendental argument has not been defended, even though that is not true, for example. Mm -hmm. But they never address the arguments for why neutrality is impossible for things like the antithesis and those are the kind of the core principles upon which presuppositionalism is based and so in order to move the conversation forward i think we need to address um they need to address those arguments and they rarely do so presuppositionalism is usually dismissed out of hand while it is in fact a, a viable um, alternative in the marketplace of ideas. Mm, I would go further, not just a viable alternative, but the only actual biblically faithful alternative. Exactly, exactly. Because when, for me, when I see an evidentialist or a classicalist doing argumentation, I see them as cutting their own feet out from under them, where they are basically positing an unbiblical anthropology, this unbiblical view of man, where they're dismissing the noetic effects of the fall. They're saying you can rationally think, you can do these things apart from God, since that person denies God, and they're saying, well, you can, in your worldview, rationally think. And they're, they're not treating Christianity as if it's true in that sense. They're not treating the unbeliever as they actually are, they're treating them as they see themselves. And if we're going to be honest with people and we're going to tell them the truth of Christianity, to start that conversation by dismissing truths about Christianity seems entirely disingenuous. Exactly. But the thing is that they are not delib deliberately doing this, right? That's why I think um, the debate over apologetic methodology boils down to a debate over theology, right? Hmm. Because presuppositionalism basically flows out of Reformed theology. And a lot of uh, our Christian brothers who are evidentialists and classicalists, they do not affirm Reformed theology. They do not affirm, for example, the noetic effects of sin and things of that nature. And so that's why I think the disagreement is, is so fundamental because we basically have different views of God and different views of man. The reformed theologian believes God is sovereign and that man is a falling creature. The, the, the non-reformed theologian thinks that man is self-sufficient, both, both epistemologically and metaphysically. They may not 
explicitly affirm that he is metaphysically self-sufficient, but they basically affirm that when they affirm that he has libertarian free will. Mm. And so that's where the, dis- the disagreement basically boils down to the disagreement over theology. And that's why if you look at Van Til's writings, when he tries to argue his case for a presuppositional approach, he's basically appealing to the reform sensibilities of other reform thinkers who are not yet presuppositional in their approach. He's basically telling them that you are inconsistent with your reformed theology when you take an evidential approach. But, but he, he, he didn't really um, try to persuade um, Arminians or Roman Catholics of his methodology. And so I think we, we cannot persuade um, Armenian or Catholic evidentialists unless we show them that Reformed theology is true. It would be a very strange thing to see a Roman Catholic presuppositionalist. <laughs> strange, strange indeed. <laughs> I suppose they would have to presuppose the uh, infallibility of... <laughs> the roman pontiff and the magisterium and the great tradition yeah maybe, man, the maybe pope... they all are presuppositionalists but they're just starting from you know the wrong starting point yeah the pope is the precondition of intelligibility mm-hmm. certainly how they treat him uh the yeah. most prominent classicalist of the this most recent age was probably rc sproul and i just saw a quote from him today which sounded so presuppositional like so Vantilian, uh, where he was uh, basically arguing for the impossibility of rational thought outside of Christianity. Now, why do you think someone like him would spend a, maybe an uncomfortable time studying Greek and Roman philosophy and delving into the works of Aquinas? Uh, these sources that he apparently implicitly knew were insufficient just in order to argue. Because uh, as far as I'm concerned, it seems more of a rhetorical argument. These things seem to be effective. Therefore, we should use them. Yeah. So I think it, it just boils down to the fact that they do not, from their perspective, they do not see a better alternative, right? They, they do not believe that Vantilianism is a rational alternative to Thomism or evidentialism or whatever. And so it seems that in order to do apologetics, they need some argument, right? Because it is, an, it is a rational defense of the faith. And if the only arguments available are evidential or classical, and, and they do not think that um, Vantilianism is a viable option, then they would double down on their um Thomism or evidentialism. Mm. And I think that is part of the problem. And I think it also boils down to um, their academic background also, because if you have been taught about the greatness of Aquinas from when you were just a seminary student, then it, it, it kind of becomes ingrained in your um, in your thought. And so it, it becomes harder to shake off. So I think these are the kind of um, non-philosophical or non-rational issues that c- 
come into play when debating apologetic methodology. Mm. The traditions are very strong. Exactly. I was lucky because I I didn't really receive a, a seminary education, but I was a William Lane Craig fanboy for a, a little while when I first got into apologetics. Mm, but I was easy to, yeah. But I was easy to convert to to Van Tilenism because it at first it was the rhetorical force that persuaded me but when i started to study it more it just um emerged as a kind of rational and the, the most biblically consistent option available uh unfortunately i well it depends how you look at it i uh was blessed with a seminary education uh but the particular institution i went to while very prestigious very very classical uh the the two apologetics courses I took were basically just here's why evidentialism is sort of useful. Here's why classicalism is God's apologetic. Oh, and also there's this presuppositionalism thing. It exists. Moving on. Uh, (laughs) Practically useless for where I am now, uh, where I had to basically teach myself. And and thanks to a lot of uh, men who are a lot smarter than I am uh, for taking the times out of their day to help teach me. Um, but no, the the current establishment is so ingrained in classicalism, is so uh, seemingly uh, resting on their convictions that uh, the church really began with Aristotle, and you cannot understand God unless you're you become a Greek first. I could see my fellow students uh, being led astray into this tradition, and while I was uh, I was, you know, taken along for a ride in that tradition for a while. Um, I was eventually brought out of it just by the the biblically based uh, apologetic that is Van Tilian revelational epistemology and presuppositionalism. Yeah, and I think once you think about it that way, it becomes a bit more clear why Van Tilianism is so. Um, people seem people seem to have some kind of allergic reaction anytime presuppositionalism is brought up because basically what Van Til brought was a paradigm shift in apologetics and a paradigm shift is usually met with um, criticism and disagreement because people do not want to leave the what has been traditionally established and so basically as, as Van Tilians, we have to fight against the ingrained trend um, traditions which have been ingrained for hundreds of years in in Christian thinking, and so I, I don't I don't know, but I guess it is a I don't know if it's a worthwhile goal to try and make something like Vantilianism mainstream. But I what I would say is that I I I wish to make the works of Vantil and his thought more prominent to be seen as a or a, a very very viable option to the um, to the to the church, right? Because I think Van Til's mind was a blessing to the church, and I think more people need need to hear what have to say. So that's why I'm I'm trying to move more towards um, educating people about Van Til. And so I think in order to create, in order to make um, 
presuppositionalism and Van Til more popular, more acceptable. We need to basically teach what he says in the and present it in the in the best way possible. And also there needs to be a resurgence of reformed theology in, in the church. And those two things would need to happen before we can um, basically reach a wider audience with um, Van Til's message.